there's the music. It's Positive and Fun by Scott Holmes. And that's the song we always play when we talk about the annual meeting of the Kentucky Academy of Science. Dave Robinson here, and you're tuned in to Bench Talk, The Weekend Science. And yeah, this is actually the fourth year we've covered the annual conference of the KAS. It was an online meeting again this year, and today we're going to feature the keynote speaker from the 2021 Conference of the Kentucky Academy of Science. It's Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. She holds two positions at the University of New Hampshire. She's an assistant professor of physics and astronomy there, but she's also a member of the core faculty in women's and gender studies all at the University of New Hampshire. Now, Dr. Prescott-Weinstein got her bachelor's degree in physics and astronomy from Harvard College. She got her master's degree in astronomy from University of California at Santa Cruz. And her PhD in theoretical physics was earned at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. First, I'll paraphrase the press release about this year's keynote speaker. Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein's research is in theoretical physics and focuses on cosmology, neutron stars, and dark matter. She also does research in black feminist science, technology, and society studies. The journal Nature recognized her as one of 10 people who shaped science in 2020, and Essence Magazine has recognized her as one of 15 black women who are paving the way in STEM and breaking barriers. A co-founder of Particles for Justice, she received the 2017 LGBT Plus Physicist Acknowledgement of Excellence Award for her contributions in improving conditions for marginalized people in physics. She's also a columnist for two different magazines, New Scientists, and Physics World. Dr. Prescott-Weinstein also received the 2021 American Physical Society Edward A. Boucher Award for her contributions to particle cosmology. Originally from eastern Los Angeles, she now divides her time between the New Hampshire seacoast and Cambridge, Massachusetts. Her first book, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred, was published on March 9, 2021, at Bold Type Books, Now, there were two parts to Dr. Prescott-Weinstein's lecture. There was the science part, mostly about cosmology, and then there were her comments about black feminist science. So, first, let's hear some introductory remarks. First, you'll hear from current president of the Kentucky Academy of Science and longtime Bench Talk team member, John Dixon. Especially, I would like to introduce for our keynote here, Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. She is an assistant professor of physics and astronomy and core faculty in women's and gender studies in the University of New Hampshire. 
Today, we are asking that she speak to us about her recent book, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space Times and Dreams Deferred. And uh, I will now turn the webinar over to Dr. Prescott Weinstein. Thank you. And, and thank you for that introduction. Just to give a little bit of an introduction about myself, I'm mostly a dark matter theorist. I am also a bit of a neutron star observer, and I'm also a black theorist. And I, I became the latter so that I could stick with the former. So I ended up starting to think about black feminist theory because it was how I could contextualize experiences that I was having in physics, what witnessing in physics. And so my book, Disordered Cosmos, is a holistic look at the doing of particle physics and cosmology through this lens. So it's not just about the technical stuff and the exciting science, it is also about um, what shapes how science happens and, and what are the issues that surround how science happens. And I'm going to be talking about both of those things today. Okay, so that was Dr. Prescott Weinstein's prologue to her keynote address to the 2021 Kentucky Academy of Science Conference. Then she laid into the science portion of her address, but since there were lots of graphs and figures associated with her talk on cosmology, I don't think it's really a good idea to broadcast that. So I'll do my best at summarizing her hard science lecture right now. Just don't forget, I'm a plant biologist, not an astrophysicist, but I'll do my best. So it was the Big Bang that created our universe 13.8 billion years ago, and now cosmologists are working to describe how our universe came to be and how it has developed since. This involves both observational astronomy and particle physics. Now, ever since the Big Bang, 13.8 billion years ago, the universe has been expanding. She used the example of taking a pen and putting dots on an uninflated balloon. And then when you blow air into that balloon, those dots, which might represent galaxies, would be moving further and further apart as the balloon got fuller and fuller with air. And not only is this balloon model continuing to expand even today, but the rate of expansion actually appears to be accelerating. The universe is expanding faster now than it used to. Then the speaker said that most of the universe is made up of this mysterious thing called dark energy. Dark energy makes up 68% of the universe, but cosmologists really don't know how to describe dark energy. But from what I've read, the expansion of the universe is thought to be somehow due to dark energy. Dark energy is pushing the universe outward ever faster. To help flesh this out a bit, here's a short clip from NASA about dark energy and why it's so difficult to study. Recent technology has propelled an explosion of new findings, raising new questions that Einstein's theories do not address. What powered the Big Bang? What happens at the edge of a black hole? And what is the mysterious dark energy that is now accelerating the expansion of the universe? We've been at such crossroads before, 
the scientific revolutions spawned by Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein were a result of the growing inadequacy of established theories of their times. We're sort of at that stage again, where despite our vastly more sophisticated understanding now than in 1905, we now have results primarily obtained from astrophysical observations, which are simply not accommodated in our theories. This is where NASA's Beyond Einstein program begins. Scientists have set a course, a well-coordinated mix of facility-class spacecraft, probes and pathfinder missions, each with powerful new technology to explore the extremes of nature, the Big Bang, black holes, and dark energy. For it is here that the current theories begin to crack and answers are revealed. To really understand the laws of nature, we have to go to these extreme environments and study them to give a hint of the true fundamental laws of nature. People are talking about doing precision cosmology for the first time. Because it used to be cosmology, well, we have a rough idea how big the universe is, maybe to a factor of two or three. But now with these new measurements, we're really getting a handle on the overall density and structure of the universe. And what they're telling us is not what we expected to hear. Well, the biggest mystery today in all of science is dark energy. Why is the universe speeding up? Um, it's a fantastic puzzle, and we're quite confident that when we figure it out, it's going to give us answers about other important puzzles as well. Since 1998, uh, something totally unexpected happened, which is we discovered that not only our universe is expanding, this expansion is accelerating. Uh, you know, this is a classical who ordered that type uh, situation. If 70% or so um, is uh, dark energy in the universe, you know, about 70% of the surface of the Earth is covered with water. Imagine we didn't have a clue what water was. This is the situation we're in. A mysterious force propelling the universe? Ironically, Einstein proposed such a force to counter the inward pull of gravity and to keep the universe static, which was the belief a hundred years ago. He called this the cosmological constant, a vacuum energy of empty space. When Edwin Hubble discovered the expansion of the universe in the 1920s, Einstein called the cosmological constant his greatest mistake. But the mysterious dark energy we see today may well be a manifestation of this cosmological constant. Einstein was perhaps right, after all. Richard Feynman and others, who developed quantum theory, realized that empty space was full of temporary or virtual particles continually forming and destroying themselves. Physicists began to suspect that the vacuum of space ought to have a repulsive form of energy generated from these virtual particles, but they could not predict its magnitude. We still do not know whether the highly accelerated expansion in the early universe called inflation and the current accelerated expansion due to dark energy are related. A space-based mission called the Dark Energy Probe to be jointly implemented by NASA and the Department of Energy is being planned to measure the expansion accurately enough to learn whether this energy is a constant property of empty space, as Einstein conjectured, or whether it shows signs of the richer structure that is predicted in modern unification theories.
This mission will be a major step in tackling the mystery of dark energy. For the first time, we actually have an inventory of the universe. But if you look at the accounting, 95% of the stuff is in forms yet to be fully understood. And so we know a lot, but we understand much less. So that's 68% of the universe, this mysterious dark energy. And then another 27% of the universe consists of dark matter. And if you subtract dark energy and dark matter from the universe, there's only 5% left. That's the normal matter that we can see and touch. So what we actually can see in the universe is the weird part, only the 5% that's not dark energy or dark matter. Now, most of Dr. Prescott Weinstein's talk on cosmology was about dark matter. And I thought she did a great job reviewing the evidence that dark matter is actually real. I really appreciated this because I've always wanted to know how they are so sure that there's all this dark matter out there. After all, dark matter is invisible. Well, it turns out that you can detect dark matter in the universe by graphing the distance from the center of a galaxy against the rotational speed of the galaxy. And if you do that, you can expect to see a certain trend in the relationship between distance and speed if the galaxy in question is only composed of normal matter. That's the stuff that we can see, the planets, the stars. Turns out, however, that if you actually measure this same relationship, you get a radically different trend line. And the difference between the expected trend line that you would expect if you had just the normal matter that we can see, and what you actually see, that difference is thought to be because of dark matter. Now, one possible explanation for this discrepancy between what we should observe and what we actually do observe is that our current theory of gravity is wrong, but apparently it's pretty difficult to conceive of that. An easier explanation is that there's a whole lot more mass out there than what we've been able to see or measure. It's dark matter, and it's called that because it doesn't produce any light. It does influence gravity, but it's invisible to us. Dark matter is transparent, and she says that if you could hold some dark matter in your hands, it would feel heavy, but you wouldn't be able to see it. It would be invisible. Another line of evidence for dark matter is that the Hubble Space Telescope picks up images of these weird arches of light that are apparently due to bending of the light emitted by different galaxies due to dark matter. She says the galaxy lights get distorted by dark matter, kind of like a funhouse mirror that you might see at a carnival. Now, we will provide a link to a YouTube video that has her full lecture if you want to see these images of these arches of light. There's a fascinating story about the discovery that gravity can cause the lights from galaxies to bend. And this is me, Dave Robinson, talking, not the speaker. It was hypothesized by Albert Einstein in a paper he published in the journal Science back in 1936. The paper was called, quote, Lens-like action of a star by the deviation of light in the gravitational field, unquote. And it's not specifically about dark matter, 
but it leads to the basic concept since dark matter does affect gravity. Now, an important confirmation that gravity can bend light, which is implied by Einstein's theory of relativity, that was made during a solar eclipse way back in 1919. In that situation, the moon blocked the sun enough that astronomers could observe the starlight behind the sun to see that, yes, indeed, the gravity of the sun caused the starlight to bend a little bit. And that was in 1919. Einstein's paper of 1936 speculated, I think, that bending of light can also be seen in the distant stars, too. What's crazy about this 1936 article is that it acknowledged a Rudy Mandel. Rudy Mandel was this Czechoslovakian-born electrical engineer who was then living in Washington, D.C., working as a busboy and a dishwasher. But he actually got an audience with Einstein, and Mandel showed Einstein the calculations that eventually got published in this 1936 paper. Einstein even acknowledged Mandel in the first paragraph of the paper. It's amazing. A busboy coming up with an idea and then getting to meet Albert Einstein to explain his idea Einstein had received his Nobel Prize in Physics 15 years before, and convincing Einstein to publish it? Incredible. I just don't see that kind of thing happening nowadays. Anyway, to get back to our speaker, she gave some other lines of evidence for dark matter, and it was all really convincing to me. So this was very helpful because up to then, I really didn't understand why astrophysicists were so darn sure that dark matter is a thing. But it does seem to be real. Apparently around each galaxy, then, is this halo of dark matter. And Prescott-Weinstein showed a photo that was altered to show how dark matter around individual galaxies would actually look to us. Again, those photos will be linked on our SoundCloud page. But these halos of dark matter end up filling a good portion of the night sky if we could actually see them. It's really quite substantial. Anyway, it was a great talk. Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein then spoke about her observations as a black feminist scholar. Let's tune into that part of her speech right now. So I'm probably the University of Waterloo's first Black woman PhD in physics. As I said, I'm also a Black feminist theorist, and I became the latter in part because of what I went through to become the former. So that means that my science is contextualized, not just by the things that I'm obviously, I hope it's coming through, like very, very excited about, but also by the journey that I had and the journey that people like me have going through physics. I'll say I'm probably University of Waterloo's first Black woman PhD in physics because in Canada, they don't collect the data. So no one's been able to find the evidence of someone before me, but it was completely unremarked upon when I graduated and actually was unremarked upon until earlier this year when I caught the university's attention because I won three different awards this spring um, for my research um, contributions for my professional society and my university. I'm the first in a lot of ways, but I think it's important to say that I'm actually part of a long tradition. I'm running plantations required scientific expertise and enslaved people are often not thought of as skilled labor and technicians, but that's incorrect. Enslaved people were absolutely skilled labor. Um, they were the ones running the plantations and that would have required people who today we would identify as scientists. 
There were also people who were becoming scientists, even when people weren't supposed to become professional scientists. Elmer Imes, the second African-American to earn a PhD in physics. His PhD work at the University of Michigan actually played like a major role in convincing people that quantum mechanics was actually a correct theory of reality. And we don't learn his name. Only recently has his name started to get out there. And so I talk about that a little bit in the book. I also point out that people have this tendency to think of Africa as like this backwards country. So first of all, it's a pretty diverse continent. It is also a place where before slavery, before the triangular slave trade, people across the continent of Africa were doing scientific work. The first inoculations that ever happened among the New England settlers here where I am happened because an enslaved Black man, um, a kidnapped man from Africa, Onesimus, taught his master how to inoculate against smallpox. So the history of inoculation and vaccination in the colonial United States is actually very much Black history. Um, So I see myself as being part of a long Black tradition of doing science. There are ways in which I am a barrier breaker, and there are ways in which I am just one of many across many generations. One of the big messages in my book is that science is shaped by the stories we tell about who matters and whose ideas count. We have a lot of arguing that's happening in the press right now about like objectivity and whether we can talk about race and all of this other stuff. And so I just want to say social phenomena do shape science because universality and objectivity are different. The idea of universality is that the laws of physics are true everywhere in the universe. And I subscribe to that. I don't think like black people come up with different theories of gravity or anything like that. But objectivity is a separate thing. It's a social phenomenon. Objectivity is an unbiased perspective. And very few of us, if anyone, is actually um, someone who has a completely unbiased perspective. So social phenomena play a role in science because science is done by people. One of the things that I started to do was think about how does the social impact what our scientific outcomes are? And so one of the things that I talk about in the book is this idea of white empiricism, which is the idea, frankly, that white supremacy and patriarchy impact how science happens, even in physics. And this is partly tied to the idea of who the ideal physicist is and the way that, for example, Black women's narratives are excluded, where people will basically throw out data from Black women because we're not considered to be trustworthy um, observers. So this is something that I talk about is this white empiricism cycle where for various reasons, white men's ideas, for example, are considered to be more valuable than black women's ideas. Even when we're talking about like our own experiences, like I say that somebody said something racist to to me and somebody says, well, I thought about it and it doesn't seem like it was racist to me. And I'm like, you've never experienced racism. How would you know? And so this becomes an invalidation of expertise and it shapes people's decisions to stay in the field to feel comfortable in science, to continue doing science. And ultimately, therefore, it shapes what science is done and who is doing that science. So this is something that I talk about in the book. This is not something that just impacts Black women. I use Black feminist theory to articulate the idea. But I also want to point to um, the struggle of the Native Hawaiians around the 30 meter telescope that's often framed as a science versus religion fight where the native Hawaiians are articulated as anti-science mystics when really what they're talking about is land sovereignty and land back. That this is another example where certain people's ideas are considered to be more valuable and certain people's needs are considered to be more important than the needs of other people and race and gender completely shape how that is articulated. 
what does the dark sky mean to us? So why is it so important for us to like reevaluate how we've been thinking about why we do these things? We evolved as a species under a night sky and we are a storytelling species and the night sky figures in those stories. I really think that what I do is storytelling. I happen to do it with math. Sylvia Winter in conversation with Catherine McKittrick, so these are two Black feminist thinkers, talk about Juan Luis Arzuaga's idea that the human is not only a languaging being, but it's a storytelling species. And as Sylvia Winter says, that means that we are homo nerens. We are a hybrid species of the social and the biological. And so my extension of this is to say that to be cut off from the night sky is to be cut off from our own humanity. So we need to think about what that means when we talk about, for example, diversity and inclusion, and I just want to problematize this framework for people for a second, because I know a lot of us are thinking in these terms, I want everyone to think about what it will do for Brianna Taylor. So I want to be clear that I use this example a lot. I'm not picking it out specifically because we're in Kentucky virtually right now, but I think that this is one that should have particular meaning for folks in Kentucky. Talking about diversity and inclusion would not have stopped what happened to her. And so we need to think bigger. One of the things that I want to communicate to people is that thinking about making sure that every single person has access to the opportunity to sit and wonder under the dark night sky actually can motivate us to rethink the social phenomena that we need to rethink in order to for example, keep Brianna Taylor safe, to ensure that she goes on to have the family that she wants, to ensure that Jacob Blake's children don't witness their father being shot in the back and having their, their childhood ended. So that's one of the big takeaway points of the book. So I really think in a lot of ways that we are just beginning to understand the universe and I'm excited to keep going. Cosmological storytelling, I think like liberation struggle is a fundamentally human activity. And so when I look at this photo of this Haitian woman who is struggling for liberation in Haiti, and when I think about Haiti as the first black republic and the incredible legacy that they have given us, I think of what they do as being connected to what I do as a scientist. That was Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein giving her keynote lecture at the 2021 Kentucky Academy of Science Annual Conference. I like this one quote of hers that perhaps summarizes her perspective from both being an astrophysicist and a Black feminist scholar. She said, quote, We all have a right to know and love the night sky. that's our show today. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. To listen to any of our older episodes, just go to forwardradio.org or check out our Facebook page. Now, this show is broadcasted on Forward Radio every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. 
Thank you for listening to WFMP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station here in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.